Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome, everyone. On today's podcast, we're going to be doing a two things. One, a story behind uh, David Rowan and, and his background, his work with Wired Magazine, but two, a book review, a, a book that I have found extremely valuable. It's called Non-Bullshit Innovation. It's probably the definitive work that I've read on the subject, and we'll get into why in a second. But first of all, welcome, Dave. Thank you. Nice to be here. We always like to start off with people's backgrounds. And as I mentioned earlier, we'd love to hear what you studied in school and what was your first job? So I'm a story guy. I don't have any of these useful modern skills like coding or design. When I was seven or eight, I spent every day of the summer school vacation making a daily magazine that I tried to get my sister to read. Um, and it had, you know, what had happened to my mum that day, that kind of stuff. Um, and that led me to doing slightly subversive magazines at school that got me into trouble. That led me at 16 or 17 to be a pirate radio DJ. Um, and I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. So at university, I studied history, um, but I was mostly doing student newspaper, edited the Cambridge student newspaper, and was kind of selling little stories to the Daily Telegraph diary column. Um, and then after graduating, I became a graduate trainee on the time scheme. And it was interesting because the year before me, they'd had another graduate trainee who um, had been fired for making up quotes in a story. Um, and I'm not sure what happened to him. His name was Boris Johnson. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I was at the Times for about 16 months learning how to report. I never did shorthand. That was before AI did it for you. Mm. Um, but I kind of realized I, I, I was kind of, I guess, a more entrepreneurial journalist. I liked ideas that could be journalism. So then I pitched a column to The Guardian on slang and new words. It was called Lengua Franca. It was in the Weekend magazine, which then was kind of newsprint, black and white. But each week I'd immerse myself in a different subculture. I'd go to the gay clubs and pubs of East London and find out the slang they were using. I'd go to Air Force and military people. I'd try and understand how language empowers identity and subversion. And that kind of led to other things that brought me into The Guardian for 10 years, editing and setting up sections. I set up an education magazine. Um, I ran the comment and the letters section and the analysis section. had one of the first internet terminals in The Guardian in about 1994. I loved this idea that through the screen you could get the whole world of information. I was kind of an optimist. And um, that led me to editing The Guardian's websites at a time when it was expanding hugely. In one year, it went from about 70 people to about 180. Left The Guardian just before the dot-com boom of the start of the century burst. Um, and then tried various other things, made some extended film reports for Channel 4 News, wrote a weekly tech column for The Times, and then a trends column for The Times magazine, and did long magazine features for The mm. Sunday Times. And um, kind of realised that 
I loved all these people building businesses. It probably wasn't me, but there was always a great narrative. And often they didn't see the narrative. And then I kind of edited a weekly paper. I was brought in to modernize the Jewish Chronicle, which I did for two years. And then Condé Nast got in touch and said, we're thinking of doing a UK edition of Wired magazine. Do you know Wired magazine? And I said, well, yeah, it's the one I like the most. It's the one I've been following since it started in 1992. And there'd been an attempt in 1995 to launch a UK Wired in consultation with The Guardian, and it failed. It was too early, and they didn't do it right. And so the idea of taking something, this was 2008, and creating a local European London-based version was very exciting. And it was a, it was a start-up. We had no money. Had a tiny team, initially 10 of us to start it, including the sub-editing and the picture editor. Um, but we decided it was the beginning of the story of the European tech boom. And it wasn't just tech, it was creativity. So we thought we would cover everything from architecture to design to business to creative thinking. And we do it by immersing ourselves in these cultures. And I was kind of saying yes to everything, traveling to lots of places. And it was the right time. So I ran wired till um, two years ago. Um, and one of the things that happened was, as I got to know more and more founders, I got to kind of help them work out what their story was introducing them to people, helping them understand the context mm. of what they were building. And I was starting to make some small angel investments in them. And I thought, this is only going to work if they're not successful, because Wired can't cover anything that I'm investing in. And then one of them became a bit successful. It took $500 million from SoftBank, and that was improbable. And I thought, you know what, I think the best time to leave something is when everything seems to be working. And eight years is quite a long time. So I thought, I'm going to step off wired. It's in good shape. Um, and I'm going to spend a bit more time working with early stage companies and doing a few more projects. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm now, what am I doing? My life is in, in many directions. I am writing, as you kindly mentioned. I'm um, working with a lot of really interesting tech talent and I've just done my 58th early stage investment and today I'm considering whether I kind of tick yes to number 59 because I get very excited about these things. I need restraining cards. Well, you're, you're a VC now. Well, I'm not really a VC because it's not the finance. Graduate. It's not, it's not, graduate I don't like the system. After 50. I love... <laughs> you need to get your Patagonia vest and off you go. <laughs> I love the energy. I love um, trying to build something that doesn't exist. I love yeah. the resilience and the self-confidence of the best founders who, because of their self-belief, manage to motivate other people to build this thing in the air yeah. until other people think, hey, it exists. Mm. So I'm learning. This is my MBA. Well, what I'd love to hear is some of those interactions of those 58 uh, companies, and maybe we'll do that in a second after we go through your book. But before we go through the book, I think there's a couple of questions maybe about the time at The Guardian and Wired, which will help readers understand a little bit more what the job of an editor is, not necessarily for the purposes of becoming one, but rather to understand how that skill uh, has transformed into what you're doing now. So I think TV shows us images of 
just about every role in life, and it's almost always a warped sense of, of glor- over-glorified, but, uh, and, and it probably hides some bad things. But what is the job of a founding editor, for example, in the case of Wired? Because it seems like from the stories in your book, it was a startup within a larger organization. What you, what yeah, you Condé Nast publishes Vogue and Vanity Fair and The New Yorker, and it's a big family-owned publishing business that's done very well in the age of shiny magazine advertising mm. and then kind of realized the internet wasn't going to go away and why it didn't really fit into the overall thinking of a lot of the Condé Nast um, mm. heritage so it made an opportunity for us it meant we could rethink the business of a magazine including um, we created an events business we created a what we called a consulting business that wasn't McKinsey consulting mm. it was helping corporate people meet some of the people in our network mm. so they could know what blockchain really was so the role of an editor, I think, in my experience, comes down to finding talent, motivating that talent to do its best work, and giving feedback to that talent to help it become even better, and giving creative space to amazing people who do visual design or photography or storytelling to feel they own their task, and then being a filter. And editing, I guess a bit like early stage investing, is mostly about saying no. Mm. And you have to constantly make curatorial decisions. Is this organization for real? Is this person underrated for what they're doing? And are we going to be learning more about them later? It's about getting there early. It's about having the courage of your own convictions. It's about not falling for the hype. It's about mostly um, not following the story because it's been given to you by a PR, but it's something you've discovered through a conversation in a corridor with somebody else. So there are parallels with mm. investing. Mm. My brief to the team at Wired was, for the section editors in particular, put in your section stories that you're excited about now. Don't try and please me. Don't try and please the publisher or the advertisers. Don't try and please the important people out there. Give space to people in organizations and projects you think deserve to be better known. And if you can give people a sense of, um, I guess, ownership, then you get some really interesting results. Then I, as an editor, was constantly learning Mm. things I didn't know but I ought to have known. Mm. Well, I mean, you have that entrepreneurial spirit within you, and it's obviously some of the things that you're working on. But how much of the organization let you have that creativity? How much of it, a lot of the stories that you tell in the book is around, especially when innovation is coming from within a larger organization, is giving freedom uh, to the smaller upstart within a larger organization to build this, this new thing. How much did you have to fight to get that? Or was that organizationally something that Condé Nast has because they have these different silos in publications? Condé Nast... Um was actually a brilliant place to work, partly because it had such self-confidence in what it was. And it attracted really excellent talent. And, you know, a lot of these people could have earned more elsewhere. They could have had equity in a startup, which they didn't have in Condé Nast. But it was loyal to its talent, and the talent in return gave the best work to Condé Nast. So I was working with some extraordinary people, but also it was a lovely 
atmosphere. Mm. One of our advantages, I think, was Wired wasn't a comfortable magazine for the Condé Nast organization. We had, among other conferences, a one-day Wired Money conference. And in one of the early iterations, I think in 2012 or 13, I proposed that we allow people to pay in Bitcoin, Mm. which was then relatively low cost, because I thought that would be a good story. Wired is um, not just talking the talk, but we're allowing people to... And it got to the finance director who blocked it. Really? Um, and she said, why would we want to take the currency that you know the criminals on the dark web are using? Um, so, you know, we, we were kind of pushing the limits occasionally, and we were sometimes challenging Condé Nast's notion of what a magazine should be doing. But it was also that time of transition where the old business model was starting to fail. Mm. And because... You know, I was going to lots of amazing events, the TED-type events. Mm. I was seeing what was possible if you bring to life what a magazine was doing. If you get the speakers not on the pages but in the room, then you have a community. Then you have sponsors who want to be part of that. So quite early on, we planned to bring Wired to life. We did, in 2011, the first of our two-day Events with 50 speakers, no panels, just 50 short keynotes, very carefully curated to create an experience for the audience. And we brought big sponsors in. We brought an amazing audience. And then we, we thought, okay, we could do this for the various niches, health, finance. And we did, I think at the end, we were doing seven events. And then we thought, okay, so we've got this pyramid We've got, at the bottom, a lot of the content we're giving free, online and through social media. Then, as we go up, there's the magazine that 50-odd thousand copies were being sold. And, you know, people were paying £4 a month for the magazine. Mm. And then we were having the conferences a bit higher up the pyramid. And, you know, sometimes tickets were £1,000, sometimes Mm. £2,000 for the two-day one. And then... We thought, what could we take higher up the pyramid? Some of the people who were at those conferences were running organizations that were desperate to understand where the future lay. They didn't know what crowdfunding meant for their organization. They didn't understand what data analytics on a large scale machine intelligence meant for them. And we knew all the people who really understood it. So what if we created a way for the insurance company in Australia or the bank in Germany to access our network, they'd pay. And so we started, we called it Wired Consulting, um, a way for people to either pay us a monthly retainer or pay us to organize to program an event for them. And it wasn't compromising our editorial integrity because it never affected what we put in the publication. Mm. But it was using our network to honestly share knowledge. Well, it's, it's a very good transition to the nature of your book, which is a series of stories of how different people have tackled different issues to drive innovation within organizations where people are sometimes stuck about where they need to go next. So let's get into it. Non-Bullshit Innovation, Radical Ideas from the World's Smartest Minds by David Roth. Now, one of the things that I love about this book is that you don't pull any punches. Like literally the first thing that gets mentioned is this conference uh, in Ovacon. 
And uh, it's hilarious and sad and, and enlightening and eye-opening all at once. And I don't want to spoil it, but maybe you can give the, the summary of how it felt to you. Because when I read it, I can almost see your face telling the story over a beer. But I want, to, I want to maybe hear kind of how it felt going through it. So the book was born from a lot of speaking engagements I was asked to do at corporate off-sites. Um, and I love speaking and... I feel I'm often translating what I'm learning from the startup world to the corporates who are having their event. And once too many times I was at one of this event, whether it was, you know, a big industrial manufacturing company, whether it was a consulting firm, and senior executives, often the director of innovation, were talking about their amazing innovation strategy and they've got this apartment this department somewhere with a few startups in, mm. or they've got their corporate incubator and they've got their strategy guidelines. And I'd often ask them, um, so how have you changed the core business through your innovation strategy? And typically the response was, oh, well, it's too early, it's too early, but we're really confident that it's going to work. And I realized this was innovation theater. This was ticking the box to make the shareholders or the team think they were transforming. But actually, they didn't want to transform because quarter by quarter, they were making very, very nice revenue from yesterday's business model. And all this innovation strategy was just talk. And sometimes, if you thought about it, it was not very smart talk because it was kind of unfocused and jargon-led. But people had a cult around their innovation Sherpa, their head of future strategy mm. and I got a bit weary of this and I thought there have to be examples of successful incumbent businesses that have transformed in an exciting way and I want to go and find them and as I was um, researching the book which I think in the end took me to 20 countries to go and immerse myself in these effective transformation organizations um, I discovered that there was an organization called the International Association of Innovation Professionals, where if you wanted to become a certified director of innovation, you could go on one of their webinars and you could pay for a certificate and you could um, convene with other innovation professionals at their annual convention called InnovaCon. And I saw that um, InnovaCon was happening in two or three weeks and it was in Washington, D.C., I thought, I have to go. I have to, like, get my cheap economy flight for 24 hours to Washington and just learn what it's like. And I was welcomed in. They were very nice. Um, and I liked the people a lot, but, boy, the jargon I was filling my notebook with. And then the head of the International Association of Innovation Professionals took me aside at the welcoming cocktail reception and said, um, David, we have innovation as a science down to a repeatable formula. I'm going to draw that formula on a cocktail napkin. And he drew this little Venn diagram, he drew this Venn diagram with various circles and one was business and one was social science. And, and, and he said in the centre, this is the formula, this is the repeatable bit of innovation. I kind of thought and I said, but isn't innovation this kind of messy thing that depends on the culture of an organization and its heritage and its values and you know what it's doing? 
I don't think there is a repeatable science. Oh, no, no, we've got it proven. And so I thought, well, let's go and see. So I then started talking to people who I consider real innovators. I, you know, I went to see Daniel Eck, who told the music industry, okay, you've been selling this lovely plastic thing that's quite profitable for a long time. I want you to stop and give away your product. That's going to save you. And they kept slamming the door in his face until it worked. And now pretty much every label is working with Spotify. That's innovation. And, you know, we had this discussion, which I quote, about what leads to innovation. And, you know, Daniel said, it's not some dude in a separate building strategizing. It's when you get hybrid people coming together and knocking ideas around. There isn't a eureka Mm. moment. There's just constant collisions. Mm. When you're writing, when you're a journalist... The most useful resource you have is the intelligence and knowledge of other people. And I just kept asking people I met, I probably asked you, have you seen any really interesting examples of innovation that works? And that became really fascinating. And, you know, I got a response. Oh, yeah, you know, this company in Lima in Peru, they've just, it's a financial services business that has supermarkets and they couldn't find talent. So they created a school system. Hmm. Or um, do you know about this fertilizer company in Norway? They had a problem getting the fertilizer from the factory to the ports. Mm. You know, they needed 40,000 diesel trucks and they couldn't find drivers and it was polluting. So they invested $40 million building the world's first autonomous electric cargo ship. Mm. And now other companies in Norway want to use them. Mm. And you know, each of these leads meant David was getting on a Ryanair flight somewhere mm. and spending a bit of time trying to understand how they had made that leap. Well, one interesting thing that you shared with me uh, earlier was the fact that you've done 50-plus investments in startups. High-risk game. Very gainful sometimes. But you're at the quantum now where you're used to hearing pitches because if for 50 investments, easily you must have at least heard 2,000 to get to those 50. And you've started tuning your ears towards things that are perhaps visionary but achievable versus those that are bullshit and are, are outright lies and you pass on those perhaps. And because the book's about innovation, I want to use that as mo- mostly as a metaphor for innovation. So it was clear that at the conference there was a lot of jargon that you've dismissed and then over the course of the book you've met all these people that have shared all these amazing stories for you. Do you feel like now you are at the level where you can walk in to any either be a corporate or any organization and, and get a gauge for whether it's latently capable of driving innovation or is it something that's still very much like a chaotic thing that isn't replicable? Possibly the most useful skill you um, pick up as a journalist is the ability to listen. It's often not about the questions you're asking. It's about the pauses you're giving the people you're talking to so you can hear what they're saying. I think I'm getting better at thinking through what I'm hearing to judge who really believes in their mission, who has a purpose-led approach to transformation, and who is just talking the talk. And it's a transferable skill to when you're trying to validate whether a startup team is going to have a better chance of making it through. But you and I both know when we're seeing somebody who's passionate. I mean, the reason I made an early high-risk investment in 
Herman Ruler of Improbable was um, I'd never met a London-based entrepreneur who had such a degree of self-belief yet an ambition to build something technically very complex. So he had the kind of the technical understanding, but he also talked in this kind of crazy way. He wanted to build for um, software simulation the equivalent of what Andrew Carnegie did for steelmaking. Mm -hmm. You have to make a judgment about whether someone is likely to bring themselves the luck, because luck is a big part of it, whether they're likely to be able to motivate a team, whether they're likely to have the resilience when things don't work, whether they're going to have the consistency in their self-belief and the belief of their project. And once you sense yes to all the above, that becomes much more interesting. And when I was in Peru, I absolutely sensed yes when I met executives at this big conglomerate, Intercorp. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit about this organisation, which I think will give some insights into what differentiates a genuine innovator. It was a company started by a guy known as CRP, Carlos Rodriguez Pastor. His dad used to be the economics minister and before that was the head of the central bank in Peru. Now, Peru has had a troubled history. It had you know, three decades of terrorism. It had hyperinflation, dysfunctional government. And a military coup meant his dad, who had been running the central bank, had to leave very quickly and lost all the assets and the family including, I think, six young children, of which Carlos was one, had to move to California, grew up without all the privileges in California. He made it through, set up a hedge fund, and in the mid-90s, moved back to Peru with his dad, and they spent, I think, $40,000 buying the bank. And they built up this bank, and then they kind of bought more banks, and then it became a supermarket business and then hotels and cinemas and pharmacies until Intercorp is now one of the biggest conglomerates in Peru. It's 4% of GDP. It's, um, I think, 80,000 people, billions of dollars of turnover. Yet CRP still sees Peru as broken, still sees the government failing. They have been at the bottom of the OECD's um, education league tables for school attainment year after year. Um, And yet government isn't helping. You know, the 15 education ministers in the last 15 years. So CRP then starts to think, if the government's not solving this, it's a real problem. We can't get talent in the company. And our customers are not becoming wealthier to aspire to buy more of our products. We have to solve it. So then he... um, worked with a bunch of people, including IDEO, the design consultancy. They went to see the best educationists around the world. And they decided, we're going to set up a school system. But it's not going to be a typical private school in Peru, which is for-profit and doesn't really deliver, you know, is as bad as the state schools. We're going to try and make it both high-quality, blended learning for online and offline, affordable to the lower middle class, and yet constantly effective. And they built this school system for you know, age 3 to 18. When I last went to talk to them, they had 52 of these schools around 
Peru and they were exporting them to places like Mexico. And yet they had to make a profit and be affordable to the lower middle class. And they had a little scholarship system for really good kids who couldn't afford it. And they're now getting double the national attainment level, so it's working. And then they thought, right, there's nowhere for these kids to graduate to. We need to create the MIT of Peru. So they created a technical university. And then they thought, right, healthcare's broken in Peru, but we've got a couple of thousand pharmacies. We know a bit about this. Why don't we set up a national chain of health clinics, which are low-cost, affordable, but still make a profit, mm. and so on. And they're now looking at the next layer. How do we bring internet connectivity to the villages in Peru? So he's driven by purpose. On the website now, they say, our purpose as a company is to make Peru the best place in Latin America to raise a family. But it's also for profit, and it's transformed the culture of the company. You go into... Lima, they have um, a couple of residential houses in this lower middle-class neighborhood, La Victoria, and that's where they're innovating from. They're living among the people they're trying to help, and they're coming up with all sorts of amazing ideas every day, and international talent wants to work there. That is innovation. Hmm. And it's great. That's that's the first story in, in the book um, under the chapter called Embrace Unmet Needs, and I found it really insightful how the book is structured in a way where Literally, it's a it's a it's almost an MBA of innovation because each chapter heading is almost like a, a moral uh, story of of innovation. Well, it's a different approach. There is like a bunch of approaches which are transferable to other industries. I mean, I'll just read a few of them for for those that are listening. Uh, embrace unmet needs, empower your team, hire pirates, turn products into services, enable moonshots, incubate tomorrow's business, and you know, there's uh, several more um, and ending with the conclusion of the book, which I'm going to read briefly before we go to some more stories. And, and the reason why I found this very touching, this, this last bit uh, at the very end of the book, is because I think when I read it, I felt like there's still a lot more chaos in, in this process. It's not neatly into a formula, which is the, how the book begins. The book begins with this, this conference that you went to proposing that there is some form, formula. And after 354 pages of stories, you conclude with the following. I did not, on my travels, discover evidence that innovation can be reduced to a scientific formula. But I regularly found, in visiting established but troubled organizations, that human biases can be innovation's greatest inhibitors. As machine learning, nanotechnology, genomics, additive manufacturing, endless other emerging technologies threaten today's business models, the biggest risk is to assume time is on your side. And... With that, I think the way that you've organized the book makes total sense, which is you've told these stories and different chapters have different morals, but at the, each, at the end of the, of the chapter, there's a series of lessons. And um, one of the chapters that stood out for me, I mean, there's, they're all great, and they all have great stories, but one, one that stood out for me, um, because it's something that all of us go through, and I actually meant to ask you this when we were talking a little bit about Wired and The Guardian, is that all startups go through a crisis. You know, there's the, each chapter has different types of stories. Like, for example, the Embrace Unmet Needs one is, is a story about entrepreneurship, really. It's a story about identifying an issue and then building out from it. But the Exploit the Crisis one is one where you're already building something and shit happens. And it's the story about how this company gets caught out on the origin of, of their cotton. I don't want to uh, steal a, you telling the story, but I think what really stuck to me was the way that you summarized how to handle it. 
maybe you can indulge me with, with kind of your version of it. So this is a story that took me to Mumbai in India. I did a lot of miles. I need to plant a rainforest to atone for my travel for this book. Um, there's a family-owned business called Wellspun that, among other things, makes sheets, towels, rugs. It's one of the world's biggest supplier of fitted sheets and towels. In a lot of American homes, they'll have well-spun sheets and towels with local department store labels on them. And everything was going really well until three years ago, exactly three years ago, when on a Friday evening in August, the big American retailer Target put out a statement saying, we're terribly sorry but we've investigated the origin of our 100% Egyptian cotton bedsheets, and it's not Egyptian cotton. And they were made by this company called Wellspun in India, and we're never going to work with them again. We're going to take the items off the shelf, and we're going to refund every customer. And that very quickly reverberated. You know, the markets didn't like it. The share price collapsed. Bed Bath & Beyond, Walmart they then step in and say, well, we're not going to sell these things anymore. And so this um, family-controlled company suddenly found the world had stopped trusting them. Their share price went from something like 120 rupees to less than 50 um, and was falling down. Um, the analysts were being very hostile. And there was a real risk the company could collapse. So they had some choices. They could either try and ride it out, or they could own it. And one of the problems with um, the cotton supply chain is it's very opaque. There are like 15 or 16 stages between picking the cotton in the field and manufacturing the finished towel, where different things could be added or taken away. The team at Wellspun, in the short term, went to the American retailers, offered to fund any returns, accepted there was a problem, owned up. But then they thought, the only way we're going to have credibility is to rethink the entire cotton supply chain and make it accountable and transparent. Mm. And they spent six months building a technology-led way of doing this um, called WellTrack, which involved tracking the cotton from the field mm. using RFID tags and scanning it at every stage so that you could know when you got your towel exactly where it had been. In fact, some of the towels have a QR code on the label, mm. and if a customer, you scan it, you can see exactly where it's been, so you can know the origin. They also changed how they supply things. They got rid of a lot of third parties. They used um, a company from Canada to do, I don't know, from New Zealand to do chemical analysis of the origins of the cotton based on the DNA and so on. But they did more research than anybody had yet done on tracing authentic origins. And that led to something interesting. That led to a lot of high-end retailers, high-end fashion brands, saying, you know, we're getting this demand, particularly from our millennial customers, who want to know more about the origins of what they're buying. Could we pay you to use your WellTrack tracking system? Mm. And Wellspun realised that because it was solving a real problem and dealing with a crisis, it had inadvertently found 
potentially a lucrative new business, which um, lay in the sourcing process they'd come up with, which they're now offering to other companies for a price. Mm. So I think the lesson from there is um, a crisis can also be the opportunity to rethink every aspect of a business and work out where the unmet needs of the future are. Mm. One of the things that I didn't quite pick up from the story was how much was going on uh, with regards to the PR management of the disaster because it's the, the, the conclusion of the story clearly is that the crisis itself drove innovation, which led to the creation of this other service, which then, you know, now is part of what the well-spun DNA is. But during that period when things were really, really bad, probably a couple of things were going through people's minds. First of all was, do we throw in the towel? Is this, is this over for us as a line of business? Because it was one line of business amongst several, right? The other thing was, how did they re re-engage trust with the customer? With this initiative, I mean, we all know the story of um, Tom Shoes and, and Skechers launching a similar product, but because it was not authentic and it wasn't really heartfelt, it didn't do as well because the customer saw right through it. And so, how did they manage that? Like when you're in your chats with them, how did they manage not just the the well track and, and and the migration into how to solve the problem, but how did they manage the customer's trust? So that when they came out the other end of that crisis, they also had a, a group of people who were willing to embrace them. So it wasn't really a customer-facing brand. It was about the retailer's trust. Mm-hmm. Because Wellspun is one of those companies that does its big deals not with you, the end customer, but with the department store and the retailer. And so they had to persuade the buyers of the big companies that they were credible. And they had extra pressures such as a very competitive cotton textile business in Vietnam that was trying to outdo India for market share. And the Vietnamese loved this because they could use it to tell a story of the unreliable quality of Indian bedsheets. Mm. So um, they had this problem and um, it was the Gunker family that were running the company and the... Um, Dipali Gunka, the wife of the founder, then went on her meet-and-greet tour of the American retailers. So it wasn't a consumer PR story. There was another set of problems, which was they were facing class-action lawsuits from American law firms that saw an opportunity. That could have been very damaging. And that got me into a bit of a mess. I approached them to say... I'd love to come and see you to tell your story. They thought, fantastic. We're happy to tell our story. We're proud of what we've done. They made lots of people available to talk to me. I met you know, the boss. I met people at lower levels. I had my chapter. And then I wanted to check some facts. So I sent an email with lots of details back. And I didn't hear from them. And I chased a couple of weeks later and I didn't hear from them. And then I got a phone call a series of phone calls, saying, you can't write anything about us. I'm sorry? We don't want you to. Our legal team, um, we showed the fact-checking email, and they said to us, why on earth are you talking to a journalist? You know we've got these class-action lawsuits. If we link the fact that we acknowledge that we did something wrong and we've created a technical solution... That's ammunition for the lawyers. That's ammunition for the other side. So you have to kill this story. 
And I said, um, well, with respect, it's a positive story. And you didn't tell me this when you told me what was happening and you knew I was publishing. So that led to um, a little standoff. I have great respect for my publisher's Penguin, who um, said, no, we are going to back you. I showed them all the correspondence. They had the tapes. The only thing about Penguin is the lawyer at Penguin was the only person in this whole process who couldn't bring himself to type in an email the full title of the book. So it was non-bullshit innovation with an asterisk in front of the in place of the E. Um, but eventually, we have the chapter. I think Wellspun's reputation will be fine. And, you know, whatever happens with the class action lawsuits, I'm sure they'll deal with. Wow. Well, that's... Um good additional color to it. It's, it's a challenge, but it sounds like the way that um, you definitely told the story in the book, um, it's a very admirable action that they took. So in many ways, it reps, represents them in such a fair way. Well, it was just a smart, no-nonsense way of dealing with something, which is be honest, mm. accept where things went wrong, and then say, okay, what can we do to solve it? Yeah. And sometimes what you do to solve it can have a much wider application. Yeah, fair enough. Well, the book has many different kinds of stories. Um, I've noticed that some stories are probably more appropriate for a corporate customer, somebody who's stuck in a, a role trying to fix a company that's dying or add additional revenue streams. And then there's other ones like this one at Wellspun where it's more of like a traditional startup type situation that you would find. And there's two other ones that popped to mind um, that were relatable as a, from a founder's point of view. One was the and not necessarily from a startup as such, just that the context. Um, one of them was this idea of the MTR um, and how they've how they adapted the business model from something that wasn't working financially for previous organizations. And the other one was the bookstore in Mayfair, which also is another interesting story of how it took a product that was increasingly being eroded in margins and made it into a service. And maybe you can you can share those. Um, but some of the the nuances that you would that you would add to the stories if you were speaking to a founder directly. So MTR is the metro company in Hong Kong. It runs the trains, and Hong Kong, as you know, doesn't have very much space, mm. so it doesn't want people to have private cars. And so the government is the key investor in this private company MTR that's done something which the rest of the world's metro operators can learn from. So if the London Underground or the Paris Metro or any of the others open a new station, I was in Copenhagen two days ago and there's a whole new line that's being opened. The upside, the benefit financially tends to go to the people who own the buildings near the station. If you have a shopping mall and there's a new metro station that opens there, suddenly your shopping mall is much more valuable. In Hong Kong, they thought, okay, so we want to run the most incredibly efficient metro system that's also very cheap for users, but highly reliable. How do we get the funding without relying on the government to do that? So they rethought the business model. They thought, rather than let the upside go to the private sector, why don't we, as we are planning a station do a deal with developers so we have a share in what they built. So if they're building um, a major new hub mm. on one of the Hong Kong islands, 
they will let the developer build a shopping mall, 50,000 apartments, but MTR will say, we want five stories of this tower block. We want the rent from this part of the shopping mall. Mm. And that revenue, it's called Rail Plus Property there scheme, provides enough money to modernise the track and the railway cars and keep it cheap all the time. Mm. So it's really just rethinking, rethinking the norms. Yeah. And it works. The reason, the reason why I really like that story is because it reminded me of a lot of startups that are entering into markets where the margins have stabilized across all the major players. You know, Think about all the fintech businesses that chiseled away at the foreign exchange fees and then made money somewhere else. And it's an, a typical example of one area of innovation for startups, which is take um, peripheral partnerships and then you rely on those to, to build a revenue stream that supplements something that has basically stabilized um, around uh, a customer who's a bit blasé about that stabilized service. And it was an interesting metaphor for that. And as I mentioned, the other one that stood out was this one of the bookstore because it's all, also another situation people find themselves uh, constantly in, which is products that are maybe stable, but eroding quickly. And there's an opportunity there in transitioning it towards more of a service. So this is why you should have cognitive diversity. Talk to people with different backgrounds, different demographics, who think in a different way to you. Because from a distance, what you're doing can make complete sense if you do it in a slightly different way. There's a bookshop that's been in Curzon Street in Mayfair since 1936. It's called Haywood Hill Books. It's a beautiful... Um, kind of leather-bound place with slightly sloping floors. Nancy Mitford worked there, and there's a blue plaque on the door commemorating that. And if you're running a bookshop that you're renting in one of the most expensive streets in London, and you're competing with Amazon, you're going to lose money. And it was doing pretty badly, and the question of survival was at stake. And then Nicky Dunn, who married into the family that owned it, who had been a political consultant, took over seven or eight years ago and he sat on the floor of the bookstore and thought, how are we going to make this work? How are we going to save this bookshop? And he thought, well, we're not going to compete as experts in selling books. We don't have algorithms and stuff that Amazon have. But maybe we can compete as experts in curating books for people who are quite discerning. And he realised they had quite a lot of well-educated, wealthy, foreign people coming into the shop. And he thought, rather than the algorithm, why don't we create the human rhythm? Why don't we get to know these people and offer bespoke services? So they started offering personalised libraries. The first customer was a wealthy woman who wanted 3,000 books on modernist art for her mountain chalet. And her budget was half a million pounds. They've done now a whole bunch of private libraries. And then they thought, what about a subscription service? We get to know individual customers. We have half a dozen ladies who sit in the basement reading a couple of hundred books a year. Each month they'll choose a book that they think you will like, gift wrap it and send it to you with a bookmark. And we can charge 400, 500, 600 pound a year for this monthly book, which is a very nice profit margin. Yeah. They've now got thousands of people subscribing to their subscription book mm. service. And it's now making profit, and it's now very comfortable. And Nikki Dunn is 
feeling more positive about his bookshop business than um, they have for years. And that's just reframing the thinking. That's just saying we thought we were in this business, but actually if we're in this business, the curation business, there are much nicer profit margins. Yeah, and it's it's great to, to hear that story because it involves a certain level of mental elasticity to rethink of who you are. And that's the problem is that I think that the the sometimes you're, your image or your personality or your ego is tied up with what you are and therefore rewriting that for the sake of continuing past it can be very difficult for some people. And one of the things and themes that I picked up across various stories is the interplay of egos in the book. For example, the the DDS one, the hacking the Pentagon, there's the issue of people who are established um, and who are doing some job, and then those that are coming in to try to disrupt that job. And uh, it is really funny how you shared how like the um, service providers who were in place at the time took credit for the work that the hackers that helped out the the Pentagon were doing. And in in researching and writing these stories, how did you find that the best companies helped lubricate that human relationship? that allows innovation to happen whilst not displacing the wisdom of those that have been in the organization for a long time or that perhaps are bringing a different contribution but innovation isn't one of them. So DDS stands for Defense Digital Service and this is a team of around 40 people inside the Pentagon whose job it is to disrespect the bureaucracy. Do you remember when President Obama created healthcare.gov <laughs> and it was a disaster and nobody could register and it cost billions of dollars and it was a national embarrassment and the government called in people from tech, from the big tech companies to come in on secondment to rescue it and that led to a team in the White House that became permanent called the United States Digital Service, kind of copying the UK government's digital service. Well, the Pentagon, the American Department of Defense has three million employees, is quite dysfunctional. Mm. It spends billions of dollars on procurement projects from you know the big Northrop Grumman type companies. And often they come in late, massively over budget, and not fit for purpose for what today's needs are. ISIS is a startup. ISIS can put a grenade on a DJI drone and send it over the border in Iraq to cause mayhem. If you've planned something for three years, a big billion-dollar infrastructure project, you're not in a position to challenge that. And the Pentagon realized they don't have that startup agility. They don't have that technical talent. They were losing out. And it was costing American lives. So um, this guy called Chris Lynch who'd been in startups and swears a lot and wears hoodies that say hack the Pentagon as he goes into work. Um, civilians, not military people. He hired a bunch of startup people, engineers, designers, to take on the problems that the big procurement projects were not solving. And they have a room in the Pentagon where they don't have the colonel's name on the door it says Rebel Alliance on the door. Mm -hmm. They've created a Star Wars culture inside that room. Very disrespectful of the bureaucracy. And they took on the first problem was um, the insecurity of the public-facing websites. And they said, we need a bug bounty competition. We need to pay friendly hackers 
to identify vulnerabilities in defense.gov. Otherwise, the bad guys are going to post a beheading video on the public-facing website. And they were told, impossible, legally impossible, can't be done, has never been done. They found some friendly lawyers, who they called bureaucracy hackers, mm-hmm. who found justifications. They did it. It worked brilliantly. It's now mandatory across all government departments in America. Then they went to the front line where the DJI drones with grenades were coming over, and they worked with some of the local troops who had technical skills to build a signal jammer to stop that happening. So one by one, they were solving real problems by not caring what the bureaucracy thought, by swearing, by being pirates in the organization. And gradually, the bureaucracy begrudgingly starts paying them respect. And gradually, the procurement companies that had hated these guys telling them what to do start putting out press releases saying, and we've started using this new thing called DevOps in our process. And gradually, they were becoming accepted. Mm. And then the Secretary of Defense puts them on stage with him as, you know, the heroes who were saving lives. Mm. But it's tricky. When you, when you share that story, you know, it, it reminds me also of the other story you mentioned about NASPERS. And it, it's just... You know, as somebody who's entering into a new market as a startup, or if you're within a division of a larger company and, and you're trying to, to do this uh, internally, it's not easy to be that that disruptive towards other people's careers and other people's jobs. And it sounds like one of the conclusions that you drew was getting acceptance at the highest level, because then to some extent you will not... You need air cover from the top. You need air cover from the top. And then... it it wasn't clear whether or not you needed to even work on trying to be diplomatic with your peers. It sounds like from the story with the DDS that generally speaking, as long as you deliver, just be perseverant and that respect will come. So it's funny. If I look back over the dozens of companies I went to see and I'm looking for common factors that define those that are going to do proper innovation, the thing I think to avoid is having shareholders as your owners because Shareholders encourage short-term thinking. The only times you have a high chance of making things work in transformation is when you have somebody or a group of people in decision-making powers who say, we're going to sacrifice short-term benefits to build the thing that is going to be our future. And that means often a family-owned business can do a genuine transformation if there's alignment at the top. Or a staff-owned business, like a cooperative, or a customer-owned business, like a, um, a membership-type building society organization. There's a bank in Finland owned by the customers that's done some amazing transformation. You need some people who can give you the air cover to make the transformation. And we're starting to see in a lot of big corporates now, Unilever, Paul Polman did this quite famously, the leadership is saying, we're not going to give the markets what they want in the short term because we have to build the sustainable business of tomorrow. If you don't like it, don't invest in us. But it's much harder when you have activist shareholders pushing you mm. to optimize short-term revenue. Yeah, no, that's a very good conclusion. And that also means if you're a startup taking money from a VC, be very careful that your VC is aligned with your long-term mission because short-term thinking, growth revenue at the expense of long-term purpose and viability is not your friend. It isn't. And therefore, 
maybe this is a good chance to talk about Voyagers because in some ways it's an environment that you've created for people to reflect on long-term. Mm. I'd love to hear what the vision was uh, behind starting it. And clearly, you know, it's a project that you're working on now post the, the writing of this book, but I'm curious as to whether or not that in of itself will be another book. I think it's a project. It's not a business. Mm. It's called Voyagers, voyagers.io. And this comes out of my experience in bringing people together to create genuinely helpful connections between people. So I used to run a monthly dinner salon where I'd bring people coming into town plus um, you know, a designer or architect with a human rights activist with a startup. And I became obsessed with how you create the conditions that people are not boasting. They're not talking about their status or their job title. They're engaging in proper conversations that go deep. And I realized there is an art to this. And if you can get people to commit time where they're offline, where they're open to other people, and if you can do it with a sense of magic, like take them to a place which is delicious in some way, interesting things happen. So I started organizing um, weekend adventures not-for-profit. I have a team that organizes in magical places. Two weeks ago, or last week, um, we hired a castle just outside Edinburgh and got 33 people involved in storytelling to um, experience the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. We worked with local journalists and arts experts to work out which shows were worth getting tickets to. We had kind of dinners with table plans, so we made sure everybody got to know each other. But at the castle, there was this kind of magic where people got to know each other, and a kind of friendship group formed. Yeah. In March, I took 45 people to a palazzo in the east of Italy, and for three days, this very diverse group of people from, I think, 14 countries, and we organised intense activities from... Um, truffle hunting to mm. mountain biking to um, a hike together where we were telling stories and it becomes actually a really useful way of getting collaboration going people end up creating businesses together mm. mentoring each other there was a human rights activist who was um, very exhausted very burned out and was kind of at tears at mm. one stage and there were people who'd run big organizations that were giving her guidance. So I'm doing this four or five times a year. And I'm fascinated by the benefits that come once you can make people feel completely open and relaxed and not defensive. The shield goes down and they can offer something to the group. It's about giving, not taking. And magical things then happen. Mm. I'm doing one in Iceland in October for people working in health tech because I keep meeting people in Tel Aviv, in Boston, in Cambridge, UK, who are working on the most extraordinary projects, but they don't talk to each other, yet they're all save, solving similar problems. So I thought, if you bring 50 people together, not just entrepreneurs and scientific researchers, but investors, advisors, regulators... Wouldn't that be an amazing set of conversations? And it's not a conference. 
Because in Iceland, we'll be hiking over the glacier or going inside the volcano or um, swimming at midnight in the hot springs. But that is the device to bring people together. Mm. But I'm not trying to make any money. I'm trying to see if I can break even. Mm. But I want to see where it leads. Well, I want to see where it leads too. You have to keep me posted on that. Well, we always like to wrap up with a couple of fun questions. And I think what I've sensed from reading your book and obviously from having known you for several years now is you're a very intellectually curious person. You definitely get into the details. You don't leave anything halfway in terms of the concept. And you've explored this idea of innovation. You've now started uh, Voyagers and it's exploring relationships. And especially it sounds like some of them are now even thematically uh, relationships in the sector or something like that. It might be too, too early to say, but What ideas do you have right now that you're brewing, that your curiosity is brewing, that could manifest themselves into a book? And what would the title of that book be? So I'm thinking a lot about the power of narrative. Um, I'm advising a bunch of early stage companies in how to identify what their core story is mm -hmm. and how to articulate it in a consistent way that appeals both to internal employees and motivates them, but also if you're trying to attract customers, if you're trying to attract funding. There's something about the power of storytelling that I think is underrated. I often get into these kind of existential conversations with founders where, in a kind of scary way, I just ask lots of questions and it comes down to why do you exist mm. you know what is the purpose what is the emotional reason for existing and you often get back to you know what happened in childhood or this problem in the world that I need to solve and from there that emotional envelope often leads to a clearer understanding of why this is a business and if you can't articulate to somebody in a pub in a sentence what you're doing and why then you need to go back to first principles. If you need jargon, if you need formulae, if you need an economic justification, that's a problem. So I'm trying to think at the moment, um, some of the best business success stories of the last few years, some of those that excite us all, are really powerful uses of storytelling. Um, so there's one of the companies I've been helping Um, we had a long conversation about Patagonia, yeah, the American clothing, clothing firm that um, had an advertising campaign saying, don't buy this jacket. Mm. Because the emotional aspect of Patagonia is not about selling merchandise. It's about empowering people to enjoy the outdoors. And of course, you don't want consumer waste cluttering up the outdoors. So make quality garments that are going to last that you can then maintain rather than try and get people to buy things. And I think if you can identify those sorts of narratives, that can lead to longer-term value. Mm. Well, I, love, I look forward to uh, seeing what that will manifest itself into in terms of a book or anything else. And maybe a chance for you to share anything that you would want people to Uh, learn more about you or promote or a cause or anything that you'd like I'm not too good at the promotion side I'm a story guy not a marketing guy um, well look thank you for reading the book mm. I guess I should promote the book but there we go um, 
I'm interested in bringing together driven people who want to contribute to a community, an emerging community. So have a look at voyagers.io and if you think it's something that you can contribute to and it's economic, it's cost neutral, drop me a note. Excellent. Well, there you have it, guys. It's a pleasure having you on the podcast, David. And for those of you interested in the book, uh, they will be in the show notes where you can buy it. And uh, until next time, bye. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.